Hiya Winford, it's uh, Colin, the bald accountant person from Scotland here wishing you a happy 29th birthday. Well done. What a fantastic achievement. It's been a privilege, Winford, to, uh, to get to know you initially through Carol, who came up to one of our retreats in Scotland. And then the next time she came up with both you and, and Mera. And we have really forged a, a, a wonderful friendship and a family friendship um, over the, the 16 years. The first thing that comes to mind when uh, to ask was, what, what should I say about Winford uh, uh, was that after the first retreat, we told you that we kind of debrief uh, and kind of, kind of uh, shake ourselves loose after, after uh, a weekend of intense work and go for a curry. So your ears pricked up and you asked me if I could take you and Mera to the curry house in, in the centre of Edinburgh. And I thought, that's great. That'd be really good. That'd be really good fun. But uh, I've never seen so, so many startled Indians because we, it was chicken tikka masala, chicken tikka jalfrezi, a, a lamb. Uh, there was a lamb korma. And, all sort of, and then the guy walked away and you said, excuse me, sir. And I thought, what's going to happen here? And you said to him in your best Welsh, could I have a bowl of chips, please? To which the waiter, another officer, <laughs> They don't do chips in India. <laughs> so I then started having chips with my curries after that. So it was quite good. But uh, on that very visit on the way back to the airport with myself as a small Fiesta car, I was on my uh, uppers at the time, a guitar, lots of, and you, Carol, uh, and Mira and myself traveling back to the airport. And you started talking about your finances and various things and you know, that was the start of me opening up because there are certain things in my life I'd kept under wraps for a long, long time. Anyway, you very graciously and, and kindly uh, talked to me about that and we, we caught up after that. So anyway, long story short, through, through uh, uh, coming to many, many more retreats uh, and also going back down to the living room uh, and then the retreats in, in St. David's in particular, uh, Winford, they were, they were life-changing uh, and affirming, and it was really, I'd like to thank you for the, the privilege of being involved uh, in the living room, also uh, with the, the recovery coaching program and, and all the, the time and effort that went into that, where I, I developed and grew in my recovery. And you pushed me to open up my mind, just I, I came from an alcoholic background and I wasn't too sure about other addictions. Anyway, you, you know, offered me uh, a chance to look at these things and, and now I teach these things and we have communities all over the place embracing uh, your vision. Uh, in addition to that, I would also like to thank uh, Mera for her immense hospitality, the, uh, her food and the welcome that uh, she, she gave to me and also for Ruth and Bethan. It's been a privilege, uh, Winford, to know you you're one of my closest and special friends, uh, and you have given me nothing but love and kindness uh, in my life. So God bless you, and may you grow to, in strength and strength even after 29 years. Greetings from Scotland via Zoom. Bye-bye.
Hello and welcome to Recovery Now Radio, brought to you by The Living Room and at Veriad. Let's recover together. Welcome to Recovery Now Radio. I'm Julie, the presenter, and I'm joined today by Carol, co-presenter. Our special guest is Winford, who at present is celebrating 29 years sobriety, which is amazing. This is the man who founded The Living Room. In the last episode, Winford talked about his life, his addiction and his recovery. Today's episode is going to be dedicated to what drove him to open and run this unique all-addiction centre called The Living Room. So without further ado, let's return to the top of that mountain, Winford, and pick up the story from there. Yes, well, it, it was uh, having achieved all my material gains, really. I was a high earner, I was a successful writing series, I was directing, I was acting in it, I was a successful writer. And uh, then the thought came to me that there's more to life than this. And um, that's when I decided to go uh, back to college. I was 58 at the time. And I went back because, if you remember, uh, I spotted a gap in the provision, which uh, historically in this country the treatment is an acute model. By that I mean there's a beginning and an end to it. It might be seven counselling sessions or three months in rehab, but it comes to an end. And there's more and more compelling evidence to suggest it doesn't work very well. And the reason for that is because it's an acute model trying to deal with a chronic long-term condition. So without providing ongoing support and aftercare, really throwing good money after that, so I thought, if I'm going to do this properly, I better get trained. So I decided to go back to college. And, uh, and I remember, actually, because my wife had just retired. She was a teacher. And all of a sudden, the money had dried up. There was nothing coming in. I wasn't getting a grant at all. And I remember my wife and I sitting at home one night and looking at each other and just telling ourselves, you know, we've never felt so secure, really. And it was an odd, odd feeling. But I went back to college and I enjoyed it very much and I, I got a very good degree at the end of it. Um, there was a lot of travelling. I, I did a placement at Aberystwyth and uh, then I had to travel down to Warminster every week. It was quite a, quite a stressful period, but I, I did get a very good degree. And then I got a scholarship to do a higher degree. But by then I was 60 and I thought, well, you know, unless I start work pretty soon I'm going to be dead. So it's going to be useless, all this work. So I decided to try for a job that went with one of the oldest charities in Wales, which was the Welsh Council on Alcohol and Other Drugs, which was set up by the churches. And um, I got that job. And they had a quarter of a million pounds in the kitties. A lot of money, isn't it? And they said, you can use this money now. And if you save one life at the end of it, that will have been worthwhile. And, um, and that's what I started to do. And this was an opportunity to set up the living room. And it took me three years. I had a three-year plan. And on the, um, I think, the 8th of September 2011, which was almost exactly to the day, really, 
three years that plan came to an end when the living room itself was launched but before that there were one or two other things that uh, better informed me about how the living room should operate so we can hear a little bit more about that um, in a minute or two then, Winford. So Julie, what's uh, Winford's first choice of songs? Well, so Winford, your first choice of music is Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. What made you choose this one? Because I always wanted to be a rock god, really. And we used, <laughs> to, have, uh, we used to have a group when I was at school, Pavlov's Hounds. And uh, we used to uh, play around the local pubs and things, you know, in Carnarvon, North Wales area. But we were once invited to play at a gig at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth. And after about 15 minutes, they paid us off. 17 pounds, I think, they paid us off. The humiliation, the heartbreak of that being paid off. But, you know, I still harbour that wish to be able to play guitar. Play guitar like Jimmy Page, like he does on this piece. It's just a sprinkly for the May Queen. Yes, there are two paths you can go back, but in the long run, and there's still time to change the road you're And it makes me wonder.
First of all, happy birthday, Winford. 29 years, amazing. I first came across you actually at a retreat rather than at the living room. I think that I heard many stories and obviously the living room was is part of who you are, but it was your legacy, I guess, at the living room that, that I was struck by the most. And it was at a retreat, the very first treat, retreat I went to. I think it was the first time I was introduced to recovery needing to have a, a spiritual dimension to it and I think that terrified me but because I was in the retreat and you were you were leading it it introduced me to a different side of spirituality and God than I I really could have seen before and it kind of started my journey into recovery in a way I hadn't expected it to and I was being really resistant to opening up that part of me, but I guess the consistency of the living room and the love actually that came from the community there, it kind of helped me understand what God really is and how it works in people. And I think that because of your input in everybody's lives, that really was the thing that drew everybody together, you know. So I'd like to thank you for you know, really being a catalyst and change for everybody so we can all share the same journey, really. So thank you, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Winfred. So you're listening to Recovery Now Radio, brought to you from the living room in Adveriad. Let's recover together. Um, that was Led Zeppelin, um, Stairway to Heaven, that Winfred chose, and also um, a tribute from Dave, one of the service users here. So over to you, Carol. Carry on. Well, yes, so let's continue your story, Winfred. So you were appointed as CEO of the Welsh Council on Alcohol and Other Drugs here in Wales. And you were challenged in a way with, even if you only assist one person to get better, our time and um, investment in you will be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Were you ready for this challenge? No, I wasn't. i tell you why, because I thought I knew best at the time. I thought I, I, I knew a prescription for getting well. I, th- you know, I, I thought I knew what the recovering addict needed. It, it took uh, a Churchill scholarship uh, to really change things for me. And I won this Churchill scholarship and uh, I would encourage anybody really, if you have uh, a desire to, to explore something and understand something a little better, apply for this. Uh, about 120, 30 every year are privileged to be awarded the Churchill Scholarship. I was one of them. And I went to America and spent about three months there. And I was looking for angels. I wanted to find out the model for the living room and some of the principles that would later guide the living room um, into calmer waters. And my problem was I was tending to put the cart in front of the horse. And I learned that uh, within half an hour of landing in America. I met this young girl on a train from Newark Airport and she was going up to Boston and I was going up to Hartford, Connecticut. And I spoke to her on this train and she had lost her father in the 9-11 atrocity. He was a firefighter. So I asked her, you know, were you offered counselling? And she said, don't talk to me about counselling. She said, I hate counselling, that hierarchical approach and people telling me that they knew, knew how I felt and empathising with me. How could they possibly empathise with me? They had no idea what I was talking about. She said, no, I refused all 
uh, office of counselling. So, you know, sorry, I asked really. But she was uh, playing ice hockey for a women's team up in Boston. She re received her education up in Boston during the week and then lived with her mother in New York over the weekend. And she told me what uh, she and a few friends had set up in New York, uh, which was a club for victims of terrorism, uh, young people, children and young people from the Middle East and Northern Ireland. They came there and they engaged in all kinds of diversionary activities like swimming, athletics, um, of course ice skating and uh, Gaelic football. I said, Gaelic football? What are you doing with Gaelic football here? Oh, on the council, she said, he comes from uh, Northern Ireland. But I thought you said you didn't like counselling. Ah, this is different, she said. You see, this counsellor is a victim of terrorism himself. And there was the model for the living room, mm -hmm. within half an hour of landing in America. And then I went to Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Connecticut and uh, to see Phil Valentine and a setup he had there. Um, uh, very similar to how the living room later developed, incidentally. But when I arrived, Philip had just been diagnosed with throat and tongue cancer and everybody was walking on eggshells, you know, and people were apologising, this is not how things normally are. And Phil hasn't, you know, coping very well with his throat and tongue cancer thing. And his door was closed. And then uh, uh, a woman walked out, uh, his spiritual advisor, and she had recommended that Phil have some solitude to come to terms with his cancer, him and his God. And I just happened to have a prayer which a guy from Port Albert here had given me on solitude, which I gave to, to Phil. And he couldn't understand why he'd had this cancer, because he'd been in recovery for years and years and living a, a good, clean life. And that morning, you know, because I was living in a hotel, I just happened to look at the Gideon Bible and I turned to the um, the verse where, where Christ is commissioning his uh, disciples and he tells them you're going to have to deal with situations far more difficult than ordinary people and the reason for that is because you're examples to other people in how to live and like it or not Phil I told him you know you're still an example to these people who you treat you know in how to live and possibly Phil in how to die you know, because these people have their own crosses to bear. But at some time, every day, I bet you, I said, they think, I wonder how Phil is getting on with his throat and tongue cancer. So like it or not, Phil, you're an example to other people in how to live. Anyway, a few days later, I was going to Willamantic. And Willamantic is the heroin capital of America. And I called past the centre to see if, uh, if anybody wanted to come with me for a two and a half hour drive down the driveway. Oh, it's not the driveways, it, what do they call it, freeway in America. And, um, and we started talking again, and Phil was saying, you know, that we have to make recovery attractive, we have to show it's, uh, it's achievable, that it's there for everybody and so forth. And we carried on talking for, for hours on end. By then, people were coming in and sitting on the floor. And then Phil said, come on, I'll treat you to, uh, to uh, a diner, meal in a diner. And I don't think you've lived, have you, until you've experienced uh, you know, a meal in a diner mm -hmm. in America. And he took us to an AA meeting as well. And then we came back and carried on talking. And by the end of the day, that door was wide open. The place was buzzing again, full of life, you know, and Phil was firing on every cylinder. And that's when a voice came into my head. I'd go to, gone to America to look for Angel. And this voice spoke clearly to my head and said, you're also, you're also being used as an angel.
how does it still affects me now? And it frightened the living daylights out of me. Fright I can't tell you how, how, how much, because I felt so inadequate, you know, with my history and what I had done and what alcohol had, um, had ruined my life. Um, but after that, you know, I, I went to Philadelphia, still perplexed and still mixed up in my head. And they gave me a model of the Liberty Bell in America. And um, the Liberty Bell, of course, was cast in order to celebrate the signing of the independence. And of course, they, they struck it once and it cracked. And they tried to repair it twice after that, and it cracked twice. So as a bell, it was absolutely useless, perfectly imperfect. But still, it was adopted by the anti-slavery campaigners as their symbol. And it was adopted by Martin Luther King as a symbol for his human rights uh, battle. And it was put on the back of a, a, of a train and taken all over America, you know, and people, thousands of people came to see it. So even though it was perfectly imperfect as a bell, it could still be used for a common good purpose. And that's where I kind of understood that I was perfectly imperfect as a person. But even I also could be used uh, in a positive way and I could be an angel as this voice. And I didn't know who or what this voice was then properly. I was to learn that much later, but at least I could perhaps respond to that uh, request to be an angel. Well, we're just going to pause there for a minute, Winford, just while we all compose ourselves. That was that was amazing. Thank you. Um, so. Our next piece of music, Carol, would you like to introduce it and then Winford say why you chose this piece? Well, now we're going to um, hear a very, very special piece of song. Well, it's special for me and it must be extremely so for you, Winford. Can Stavich Veil, the living room song. Can you tell us a little bit about the background here? Yes, Alan Hughes was a recovering alcoholic and a, a, quite a famous songwriter and he sadly died a few years ago, a very young man actually. Um, but uh, he was a wonderful composer and he came together with several others to, to try and promote the living room, uh, raise awareness of it, because the ra living room opened on the uh, 8th, I think, of uh, September 2011. And uh, so it was promoting this, you know, it's very, very important. And I asked him to compose a song for us, and he came up with this song in both Welsh and English. And again, he was inspired. I think the words are superb to this, and it works equally well in both English and Welsh. So I have a great uh, debt to uh, gratitude to Alan Spardin Hughes, a genius, really, um, one of the many that I've been privileged to know on this recovery journey. The same. You tried to kick it many times, and many times you failed. It came right back and hooked you when you thought you had it made. And every step you take now, along this haunted street, takes you down.
Happy 29th recovery birthday. Um, what an achievement. What can I say about you? Well, thank you doesn't cut it enough really, does it? But thank you from the bottom of my heart. You've been there throughout my own recovery journey and you've really been my inspiration from, you know, all the groups that we did together and, and I remember I used to sit there in the corner thinking, please don't pick on me, please don't pick on me. <laughs> of course, you always did. But just to be part of the groups and part of the living room has, has been such a wonderful experience for me. But um, there's two particular things that sort of hit me. I remember you once, you'd organised um, a trip to Carmarthenshire and uh, it was a seminar or something and we'd all got on the coach and... We'd had a good day out and we came back, we had fish and chips and, you know, it was a great trip trip out for everybody. And, and you and I, when we got back to the living room, we, we sort of ran ahead because they were all bursting for the toilet. And um, we opened up and we just stood there for a minute and everybody was piling in into the car park from the coach. And you said to me, Julie Bach, just listen to that. And I said, what? And he says, can you hear them? And I said, yeah. And of course there was this babble of people coming down the, the driveway and you said, Julie, that's the sound of recovery. And it was just such a special moment. So I'll always hold that very dear, that, that sound of laughter and fun and, you know, things that I'd completely lost in my life. So um, thank you for that. 
And the other thing you said to me is, um, Julie, you didn't get sober to do nothing. That's stuck with me all the time. So, um, you know, I do, I do try and give back a bit. So um, thank you for that important reminder, Winford. And, uh, you know, I love you to bits. And uh, you've got an amazing family and your living room family, uh, my family too now. So um, thank you so, so much. Take care and have a, a wonderful time. God bless. Those were the words of appreciation from Julie, who does give back a lot to the community that you formed back in the 2010-11, the Living Room Community, and we've also just heard the song, Carne Stavichveu, the Living Room Song. But let's return back to America, because you experienced quite a lot of um, um, experiences, um, very, very huge experiences, I think, that mapped what was to become uh, the philosophy of the living room. But I think you've got one more very important um, experience that you would like to share with us from well, your time uh, in it, America. It was in Philadelphia, again, that um, I was invited to talk about my church's scholarship there on a radio program and uh, I was outside the studio and I met Adam and Adam was from Uganda and uh, he'd been imprisoned by Idi Amin and, uh, and had been tortured and had escaped uh, after about two and a half years and became a refugee all over Europe and ended up in Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia where the walking dead you know, you don't go there without police escort, that kind of place. And he was outside the living room and he, he had a cart with him full of paintings, wonderful paintings. He was a painter and uh, he was selling these paintings. And, um, and I fell in love with one of them, which was a painting of the Last Supper. And I said, oh, can I buy that painting, Adam? Uh, how much is it? And he said, you would choose that one, wouldn't you? He said, that's the one painting that I will never ever sell for all the money in the world. And he explained that, you see, when I came to Kensington Avenue, I started painting again. And it was while I was painting that picture that I got to know the person of Christ. And that has given me a faith that has sustained me in my recovery all these years. He said, no. That's the one painting I will never, ever sell for all the money in the world. And just then, the guy who was doing the interview uh, came uh, to the front door and said, yeah, you better come, we're on the air in a few minutes. So I said my farewell to Adam, and I haven't seen him since. But the following day, I got a call from this guy who did the radio interview, saying, what are you doing today? Well, I, I said, I've, I'm, I'm seeing various centres in Philadelphia. They, they, they took me around all these centres, marvellous work being done there. Million, billion dollars a year, mental health and substance misuse there being, being run in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, fantastic. Um, but I said, I'm seeing um, Professor Roland Lamb, one of the big bosses there, in my hotel at 12 o'clock. Oh, good, he said. I'll come along. I've got something for you. And at 12 o'clock he turned up and sure enough what he had for me was this picture of the Last Supper, a gift from Adam. And I couldn't get over it. I could not understand what a change this guy's mind. A guy who said that he wouldn't sell it for any money in the world. 
and all of a sudden he was prepared to give it away for nothing. And that is really where I learned the meaning of a gift. It's not a book token or an aftershave. It's giving something that means the world to you and you give it away for nothing. And this is, of course, is what we do at the living room. What we give away are our recoveries, the things that mean the world to us above anything else, the treasure that we've been given, and we give it away for nothing. So that's the lesson Adam taught me in Philadelphia in America. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I mean, I'm so glad that you went to America, Winfred. It must have been an amazing effect on your life. It certainly affected everybody that's been to the living room. So. Well, yeah. do you know the difference? When I came back, things had changed completely for me. I wasn't aware when I was in America what had changed, but by the time I came back, everything had changed. Mm -hmm. And what I had was uh, this love which I never had before. It wasn't my love. It was everything and anyone. It was, see, I had no patience, I'll be honest with you. I had very little <laughs> patience with people who were drinking again and slipping and sliding all over the place. I was very good with people who'd been sober about two or three years. I could work with them, but I didn't have much patience for the ones who were early recovery. By the time I came back, mm -hmm. that changed completely. I had immense compassion and understanding, tolerance and love. But more than that, I had this energy, and it wasn't my energy. And it's that love, that compassion, that energy really that has sustained me. And it ain't mine. And I'm still piggybacking on it. So it's, uh, it's remarkable. So we'll play your next piece of music. So um, it's a hymn, and um, I am beloved of God. Um, so why did you choose that one? Well, it ain't a hymn to start with. Oh. It's something I wrote. Oh, sorry. Um, right. And I wrote it um, because when I decided to stand down from the living room in 2017, I did that incidentally because one of the trustees had said that I was the living room. Now, my journey had been about finding out who or what I was, who or what was doing the living and the dying in Winford's name. You know, and what brought me to recovery was not the physical suffering, it wasn't the mental emotional turmoil I would say, no, that, that did contribute. It was this spiritual poverty, really. And um, so I didn't know who or what I was. So the journey of recovery for me became a journey of finding out who I was. Uh, and in order to do that, I had to embrace the dark side of my psyche, the things I'd always run away from, um, the things I didn't like about myself, and, uh, and that was tough. Uh, and it was a journey that had to go deeper than that even. It had to go beyond what you see now. It had to go beyond the cluster of cells, beyond the molecules, beyond the, beyond the atoms, beyond the particles. It had to go to that no-thingness inside because I realized I had to find out who I was without the alcohol. I thought I'd be happy, joyous and free. But no, there were so many other attachments in my life to my parents' critical voice in my head, to the fear of financial insecurity, to what other people thought of me, to power, prestige, all these things. I had to find out who I was without all these things. And I had to go into that no-thingness where nothing defined who I was. And it was in there, really, that I found the answer to who or what I was. And it was really what I always feared, that I was nothing, absolutely nothing. But in that nothingness, it kind of imploded and I became everything. And I think part of the gifts, some of the main gifts, one, uh, 
the ability to stay in the moment, every waking moment of the day is a gift because everything is perfect in that moment. And the second was to experience that love that emanates from the Divine's heart. And you know, at the first program I mentioned that I felt that I was unloved. In fact, by the end, I felt I was unlovable. And that really was at the source of my, at the root of my addiction, that I was looking for that love. But the world and its materialistic, egocentric things couldn't give me that. Couldn't. It mimicked it very closely, but only for a short time. I had to do it again and again and again, you know, and in the end, of course, it just slipped away. It couldn't give me. I had to go inside. It was an inside job, and I had to go into that no-thingness, that void inside myself to discover that love that emanates from the Divine's heart. And I wanted to summarize, really, my journey, because um, they organized a lovely do for me, a retirement do at the Temple of Peace here in Cardiff, and I wanted to tell them what it was all about for me. And so I wrote these words, and uh, Sean Ellen Jones, a friend of mine, uh, wrote the music and forgive the singing but the sentiment is as true now as it was then I am beloved of God and God and I go marching on precious prices perfect in every way I am beloved of God and God and I go marching on with gladness to the end of the day. I am beloved of God, nothing else seems to matter. So my name's Paul and I met Winford in 2012. I'd been experiencing a lot of problems and um, I'd been visiting a counsellor who we got to a point where I was beginning to be ready to engage with group therapy, which I'd always resisted the idea of like the plague. 
And he told me about Recovery Cymru and the living room as two local providers. And he said to me at that stage, I think you could get on well with Winford. And so I started thinking, I wonder who this Winford is. And eventually I plucked up the courage to come to the living room. And so Winford did my intake. And that was just over eight years ago. And I kind of immediately felt that this was a guy who understood me and would challenge me, but in a very supportive and kind of paternal way, you know, and give me some leadership and guidance that I didn't feel that I had in my life. I'd, I'd kind of recently lost my dad and my stepfather was very ill, but perhaps I'd always lacked a really positive and protective, supportive role model. And so over the last eight years, I've, I've really valued and respected his role, both in supporting me, but, but also in, in helping steer the, the vision of the living room. Uh, he's a great, he's a man who speaks in parables, and I'm forever quoting Winford if I'm facilitating a group. I'll say, well, Winford would say this. And, and considering that uh, I haven't been in, in a group with Winford for about five years, it's quite a tribute that uh, his words come to me virtually all the time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to Winford. And I like him a great deal. And uh, I meet a lot of other people who who have had so much support from Wynne and so much help that uh, I'm really glad that he is continuing to kind of show his, his leadership and support and uh, wish him a, a very, very long and happy life. So you're li listening to Recovery Now Radio brought to you from the living room in Edveriad. Let's recover together. So we just heard Winford's song there. It was a beautiful song, Winford. Thank you. Um, I am beloved of God, um, written and performed by yourself um, and also um, a fitting tribute there from Paul so Carol so shall we return back to Wales then Winford from America you you just said that you uh, felt that you came back able to love others and that you were basically still riding and sharing this love that you knew was God-given how did things now develop? Well, the living room um, always struggled financially, I think, to, to support itself. Um, but even, even though we were struggling financially, I heard that Rosergen, which was uh, the treatment centre I went to initially, which helped save my life really, uh, was about to close and, and was suffering difficulties itself. And I wanted to try and save that. It's amazing, isn't it? Drowning man really trying to save another drowning. Um, so I, I went to see them here at the Welsh Assembly and tried to, to see if there was interest in getting some funding to try and rescue this because it was an invaluable um, experience for me and a wonderful resource. And I had somebody on my uh, board who I sent to London to see the receiver to see what the terms were of taking this place over. And he went to London and he said it was somebody else there inquiring about it. Who? What? I said, how dare they? Who are they? 
And this was CAIS, which is a, a much bigger organization than ours, and they were interested in doing it. So um, we were brought together by the member of, of the assembly, really, for that area at the Llandid No Nationalised Stelvod. Clive Wolfendale and myself met there and we decided to work together. Alas, we couldn't save um, Ros Erchan. Um, it had to die, unfortunately. Uh, um, the government wasn't really interested in, in forking out money to, to rescue it. But in the process, of course, we, uh, he realised that I was struggling a bit and you know, it was suggested that we could join up as well, and that's what happened. So, uh, Kais became our parent company, really, and that's how we um, survived for up till my retirement. And still, it goes on. But now, Kais itself run, has been uh, subsumed by an even bigger organisation, which is Advariate Recovery. So, we, we're still a part of this organisation. The most important thing is that we retain our philosophy and our approach, which is different, and it's the all addiction approach. And of course, you know, my when I appointed people to the living room, yes, their skills were important as counsellors, but you might be the best counsellor in the world, but unless you have that ability to show compassion and love and understanding towards these people. You might as well pack your bags and go home. So I would always be looking for that uh, in people and really those are the people that run the living room. They have to have that love, that compassion, that that, that love for, for humanity really. And, and that overrides everything else. And that really is at the heart of, of the living room. And that goes back to my experience with that young girl in the attic in Aberystwyth where, you know, she was holding on to both my hands, she was shaking, and I was suffering from the DTs, and that's when I asked for help. But I noticed there was something different about her to everybody else. She had compassion in her eyes. And in that instant, I knew that that is the answer to addiction. And that's why the living room really is an embodiment of that love, and still works. And miracles still happen at the living room, you know, we live in the age of miracles and uh, I see it happen on a daily basis. Now, of course, I look after clergy and ministers of religion and that's such a privileged position to be in because I'm a minister and I can talk that kind of language and I'm free to explore spirituality which lets me loose and I enjoy it so much. It's such a privilege. And now I lead on a service for doctors as well, Envis and the BTR service for gamblers as well and I still get to lead retreats and things like this. It, it really is a privileged life. Have you got a spiritual hero? Uh, a spiritual hero? Mm. Do I have a spiritual hero? Well, I did come across Douglas Harding, uh, who was an architect who had uh, who discovered something very, very special. And a lot of people who are on the spiritual journey have come across Douglas Harding. And uh, he, you see, I couldn't get along with uh, meditation and things like that. I, I felt it was me imposing some state on myself, which I wasn't comfortable about. And yet I found an ability to stay in the moment. And I didn't know how I was doing it, but I came across Douglas Harding and I read about him and uh, explored a bit more about his life and his work and he explained to me what I was doing and I've been a great fan of his ever since really um, you know the fact that I uh, 
that duality, that being able to hold two opposites together in one hand, that on the one hand I'm divine by nature and on the other hand I am human. Uh, so that doesn't make me immune from the ups and downs and the challenges of life, but it puts a new meaning into them and most people tend to forget that they have that divine aspect to their nature as well. You know, I am God really, I am my own creator, you know, and um, it's it's coming to that realization really and and that love all-consuming love that is at the root that moves the planets you know regulates day and night the ebb and flow of the sea the heartbeat the temperature of my body everything you know this power immense power and uh, that was the power I was able to access you know once I recognized that uh, my need of help really and it's this humility and I've got a little story about humility I'll tell it because it's a lovely story and it needs to go worldwide um, I was in Pembrokeshire down there um, one summer and there was a cliff edge and there was a narrow ledge running across the face of this cliff edge only about uh, uh, 18 inches or something like that and either end there was a, a sheep standing and they were just about to walk uh, to meet each other on this narrow ridge and it was high above the rocks and the sea below and I could just envisage these sheep headbutting each other and falling to their deaths uh, below but not a bit of it you know what happened one of them stretched off out her four legs in front of her and lay flat on the floor and the other carefully and slowly walked over her to safety and that's the living room really you know people like me like you all in recovery you know we lay down flat on the floor and allow other people to walk over us to recovery and that really is the epitome of what the living room is about and the other little story which i like to tell at the end of most of my little speeches is about uh, uh, Johnny in school who was a naughty boy and I was a naughty boy in school and he cut up a map of the world into lots of pieces and the teacher told him off you know shouting at him and gave him glue and sellotape and said go and stand in the corner stick the map of the world together again and she knew we'd be there for hours because he'd made a right mess of this map of the world and there he was trying to stick the map of the world together at least she could get on with teaching the rest of the kids because he was a pest in school you know at least he had some peace to teach the rest of the kids and she blatted five minutes and he was back miss miss he said look i put the map of the world together again she was astounded how did you manage to do that johnny back well, you see miss she said there was a there was a picture of a man on the back and once i put the man together again the world just fell into place that's the living room <laughs> men and women's lives are put back together again and miraculously their wills also fall back into place that's the miracle i've been a part of and been privileged to be a part of so it's my opportunity to thank you and to thank god for the life i've had thank you winters we'll play your next track now yeah, him. Uh, him. Him this time, I'll get it right now. <laughs> and Carol? Yes, think? we're going to play a Welsh hymn, traditional hymn, De Magariad Velimoroedd, sung and arranged by Hewen.
This is a very, very difficult question. Uh, not because there's, uh, you know, one doesn't know what to say, because there's there's too much to say. You know, I, I've known Winford now throughout my whole recovery, that's really 17 years, and I, uh, I think had I not found Winford early in my recovery, I, well, have no idea where I'd be now. Um, Winford was the person who guided me first, but who challenged me first. He wouldn't put up with any of my rubbish first, and who demanded I be better first, and knew that I could, I could be more than the spoiled, petulant addict child that 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 he met and Winford has been such an enormous enormous part of my life that I, I it kind of really defies the description of, of of summarizing that but I I just couldn't imagine really uh, having not had him in my life and not having had him as my guide um, and of course the living room um, really is another integral part of that because uh, it's impossible to distinguish distinguish the two uh, you can't have one without the other the wind the the living room is kind of one uh, Winford's creation and now he has set it out into the world to uh, be whatever it's meant to be and uh, it's grown to be something quite extraordinary and remarkable those were the words of Nick showing appreciation to our guest today, Winford Ellis Owen. And we also previously heard um, Hewen's adaptation of the Welsh hymn, De Magariad Fel So Winford, I'd like to ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, I think. So I'd like you to, or if you can recall, your happiest and maybe the saddest experience you've had at the living room. Happiest and saddest. It's a very, very difficult question to answer that. And the reason for that is that, you know, every night and every morning I say, you know, today's going to be the best day of my life. Everything's going to work out perfectly. Everything's going to work out exactly as it's meant to. I'm going to be happy, joyous and free today. I'm going to be comfortable in my own skin. Today's going to be the best day of my life. So I was asked recently in a BBC questionnaire which was the best day of my life. I couldn't answer it really. All I could say was oh, every day is the best day of my life. I'm grateful to be in recovery every single day. I haven't lost that gratitude. And I've never seen a grateful drunk drunk, you know. So I've been blessed with that. And uh, it's very, very difficult. Saddest day? There have been many disappointments, things haven't worked out exactly as I had hoped. But I've learned over the years, you know, that some of my biggest mistakes have turned out to be the biggest blessings. So I can't really um, tell you that there has ever been a bad time. You know, I've had wonderful people uh, to work there. Um, I've been a father, like a father to uh, many of them. You know, and that's been a privilege. I've watched them recover. And the living room, you see, the idea I had was that the people who were coming through the living room would end up running the living room. And that really has more or less happened, you know. 
privilege to have Carol come along and work for us. And Carol was full of doubts and insecurity. She couldn't do it, she couldn't do that. And she could, and she has uh, very, very successfully. You know, we've got to reach for the stars, haven't we? You know, and we've got to reach for a job that is slightly beyond our reach. And we grow into it. And that's what has happened with Carol successfully. And with you, Julie, and Nick, and Dee, and all these wonderful people that run the living room. Special, special people. So no, I can't answer your question, to be honest with you. I can't tell you which is the best day of my life. Uh, in the living room because every day was really was something exciting would happen every day I think I've been privileged my family have been superb my wife in particular you know and the girls as well who I adore with very very close family and, and my grandchildren you know I, I experienced immense love from them you know and uh, it's, it's been real privilege to be called call myself a, a, a grandpa to, to those kids you know and, and I feel the same with the living room, really. Um, all my children, really. You know, everybody. And that is what gives you the greatest joy, I think, is to see these people recover. There's nothing in the world like that, you know. And that, of course, is the goal. So that everybody really um, needs to become a giver instead of a taker. And once you achieve that, then, of course, you discover the secret of happiness, which is to become a giver instead of a taker and that's what the living room is about that i hope is what my life has been about and that is what i hope i've modeled to everybody else and is at work here currently at the living room and outside it in the vital world oh thank you Winford. that was an amazing response yeah so sadly um this is nearly the end we've got one more piece of music to play um, i'm going to do my usual list of thank you so thank you to the listeners and thank you so much to The Living Room and Adveriad for allowing um, the programme to go ahead. You've been listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite sad. I don't really want it to end, but there no. we are. Um, please tell us about your last piece of music, Winford. And then we're going to hear um, Carol's special tribute um, that will finish off the show. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. You, you are an amazing man. So. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's a real treat. I've enjoyed it very much. And I apologise for the blubbering and the crying. Gosh, you know, I don't usually do things like this, but it's been very emotional for me. So, by the way, I, I when I do experience these bouts of tears, I, I feel really close to my God. I think it's, uh, it's, it's good. And as Greg reminded me earlier, it's good to cry. It takes a man to cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music, final music, is is the theme from Schindler's List. Um, I just like the music. I like the passion in it. Uh, I like the emotion in it. You know, the suffering. And I can't really lord suffering enough. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without the suffering. It is still the greatest, potentially the greatest creative force in nature. And the Jews that we know all too well suffered immensely and yet and yet were able to emerge triumphant and this is the great thing about recovery yes it starts with suffering but it ends triumphantly with recovery that it's attractive it's achievable and it's available to everybody who wants it so get in touch if you're suffering get in touch the help is available thank you thank you
Well, Winford. Do you know I'm hugely indebted to Winford because um, I got to know him about 25 years ago 
when I was in hell with my own addiction and he came and visited me one lunchtime when I was an inpatient at the local uh, mental health hospital and our um, relationship um, started there. He held my hand symbolically and brought me into the world of recovery and um, I do, I do really owe my life to him. He and his wife also took care of my children when I went into rehab and they are still there. 25 years later, they are still there, Winford and his wife, there if I am in any conflict or if I need assistance, if I need to cry on his shoulder, if I just need to just have a good, tidy conversation with somebody. Winford is always there. He is a giver, an enormous giver to the course of people being able to change direction in their life from the hell and mystery of addiction to the gates of freedom, forgiveness and love. I love the man to bits.